Oliver Goldsmith was onto something when he quipped, you can preach a better sermon with your life than with your lips. So question, what kind of sermon are you living? Write that question down on your outline this morning. What kind of sermon are you living? Let's talk about that. Would you stand for the reading of God's word in the text this morning in Ephesians 2? Yet I considered it necessary to send you, Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need. Since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick, for indeed he was sick almost unto death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I sent him to the more eager, I sent him the more eagerly, that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such men in esteem. Because for the work of Christ he came close to death, not regarding his life, to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. Um, I just want to, uh, guys, I, we could stand here and we could pray, but I'm going to ask you guys to pray in your own time. And remember our brother Dale, he came down with COVID again. And as you know, he's still struggling from COVID he had a year ago with his breathing and everything. So I just want to just ask you all to just please remember him and lift him up in prayer every single day um, and, and bring him back here again to us. Okay, thanks. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord. We thank you for our brother Dale. We thank you for his, his just a beautiful spirit of um, uplifting his brothers and sisters, always with a kind word, always with a smile. And, um, and Lord, we just ask you, Lord, to, to work on behalf of him, just to heal his body of this terrible virus. And, um, and Lord, we, we pray that the symptoms will be less this time, and we just pray that he'll get over it quickly, and we just thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Jam, switch to the... You may be seated. <clears throat> Amen. All right. I've titled this sermon, A Self-Forgetful Servant. A Self-Forgetful Servant. And of course, this is about a guy named Epaphroditus. So uh, <laughs> I read something that kind of made me laugh out loud this week. In this section of chapter 2, basically the back half of Philippians 2, um, nobody has a life verse out of there. It's not a popular section. It's not preached often, um, except that maybe a pastor's retirement or something like that. You just don't hear this text. And I want to say to you that's the beauty and the wisdom of expositional exegetical preaching of God's word as we cover it all and as I had confessed to you earlier when I came to this 
portion, this back half of chapter 2, upon my first blush reading of it, I said to the Lord, There's no, there are no sermons in here. Um, have you ever done that when you read the Word? You read it as the Lord. What's, what's in, what am I supposed to do with that? But oh, beloved, when I began to dig into the Word, the history, and, and, and uh, understand what was going on, I found that within these travel plans, and that's what this last section is, it's the travel plans of Timothy and Epaphroditus giving the church a heads up as to what was going on because the plans had changed, that embedded within these plans are so many lessons that I needed to learn. I needed to be confronted with once again. So it is my prayer today that God would allow that to happen and that he would write upon your heart exactly what the Spirit has for you today. So let me give you some background. Um, this guy named Epaphroditus, we're not really sure. There's, there's some debate and it's interesting. Some guys are like really firm on one side that Epaphroditus was absolutely the pastor or one of the elders at this church at Philippi. Others say, you know, there's, there's really no internal evidence for that. He's just a layman. He's just, he's just a guy that they chose. Regardless of what his title was, he definitely was a servant um, in that sense. So they needed to, the, the, the church at Philippi had taken up a collection of money for Paul, who was in prison in Rome. Now, if you look at Philippi and Rome, we're talking 800 miles. No airplanes, no trains, planes, or automobiles. This is 800 miles in your sandals. Can you imagine? It's a pretty decent trip, right? Yeah. So this is not like, I'm just going to jog over here and bring Paul this money. Yeah. Uh, so they had to find somebody to carry this, you would think, a, a significant sum of money. Why did Paul need money? He was under house arrest. Uh, in prison, and in those days, you were responsible for your own food and your own needs. And if you didn't have any money, they literally chained you outside to a post and see how long you lived with nothing. So if you were going to make it and live, it de you depended on people. So they loved Paul, and they raised this money for Paul, and Epaphroditus was chosen out of the church uh, to carry this money to Paul. And he had, and there's reasons outside of Philippians we believe this to be the guy. He, he traveled with at least one other, but I surmise there would be several that went. You're carrying that large sum of money. You're going with more than one person. We know that Aristarchus was with him, was another servant uh, in the early church. So he's, it's an 800-mile trip, and somewhere on this journey, which you know would take, probably close to a month. Uh, somewhere in this journey, Epaphroditus gets deathly ill, probably with malaria or something akin to it, if you can imagine. Um, he is bad sick. And along that journey, word, whether it was Aristarchus or Epaphroditus, word gets back someone going in the other direction and say, hey, you're going to Philadelphia uh, or to Philippi. Take this to this person at Philippi. And the church found out that Epaphroditus was severely ill. And, and we don't know. We, we can only infer. 
Uh, Aristarchus might have encouraged him to go back, but Epaphroditus wouldn't hear of it. So he continues in a very compromised state. Uh, I can't imagine walking with a fever, can you? In a hot climate anyway. But there he goes. So, um, and, and it's very possible that Epaphroditus was chosen by the church at Philippi, and we think this by the content of the letter in this section, is that he was going there to relieve Timothy so that Timothy could come back with a letter from Paul, which is what we're reading now, that Timothy would deliver that back to the church at Philippi and be with them due to some of the internal issues there, and Timothy was going to handle that as a pastor shepherd. Um, that was the plan, but these plans have changed. Um, word was sent back to the church, as I said, that Epaphroditus was seriously ill. And here's the thing, it left the church in the dark. And worrying over him and his sickness, listen to this, caused Epaphroditus to be overwhelmed for them, not for himself. Epaphrodite, and I'll get into this in a minute, but Epaphroditus was absolutely overwhelmed with sorrow and concern for his church people that they were concerned about him. Okay, can we put, hit the pause button right here for a minute? I'm thrilled when people are concerned about me when I'm sick. How about you? My wife says I'm a bad sick person. I don't know if that's true. My mother says it too, so maybe it is. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not the best sick person. And God has been very kind to my wife in that I rarely get sick. Um, so that's been a blessing. But when I'm sick, I want everybody to know it. I want people praying for me. I want people to be worried about me. That's a, that means you love me. Now, my wife, on the other hand, when she gets sick, she wants to get in that bed and leave me alone. Am I right? She's kind of more like Epaphroditus. I guess she's more spiritual and humble than I am. Just leave me alone. Let me do my thing. So here he is just overwhelmed because they're worried about him. And there's, there's no way to get a quick word back. There's no email. There's no texting. There's no phone call. There's no way to get this message back over 800 miles. And Epaphroditus is totally twisted up over the fact that his people are worrying about him. And it's, it's having a, a negative effect on him. So Paul, by the way, I want to say there, this, this back up, look at this guy. We don't know much about him. But what a humble, self-forgetful servant is he? Are, are you all with me on do you see what I'm see, Do you see what I'm seeing? His worry is for their worry for him. I don't even know if i got a box to put that one in, but I'm really impressed. So Paul decides it best to send Epaphroditus home with Timothy to follow later. So he's going to reverse the order. They're expecting Timothy to get their own guy back. And some there, Paul's thinking ahead, some there may have seen this as a failure or weakness on Epaphroditus' part. Paul saw that as a possibility, which is why he writes what he does here. By the way, can I, can I please remind you that what is written here in these verses is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean, Pastor? It means it is absolutely true. Paul is not flattering Epaphroditus. He is telling the truth in the Holy Spirit. 
It's very important that we recognize that. So he, he decides it's better to send Epaphroditus home early and keep Timothy, who he will then send later. And like I said, some there might have perceived this as a failure or some weakness. Because, I mean, they were so excited to send Epaphroditus to relieve Timothy and that they could have someone there hands-on ministering to Paul. So Paul writes this assessment of the man that shows him for what he really is. What is this man? And you should write this down. It's not in your outline. He is a self-forgetful servant cut from the same cloth as King Jesus. That's chapter 2. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. I love the, I forget which translation, it says, let this attitude be at home in your thinking. That was at home in the thinking of the Lord Jesus. And it's about this massive volitional humility, the path that Jesus took, he went low. That mind was very much at home in Timothy and Epaphroditus. Is that mind at home in you? So how do I know? When's the last time you were offended? You should be able to remember that. And what was it over? I confessed to my wife yesterday, as much as I didn't want to, of something that offended me. And I realized I'm such a neophyte when it comes to humility. It wasn't even a big deal. It was so small. And it was said in jest. But it hurt my feelings because there's still so much of Paul and so little of Jesus in my thinking at times. Not with Epaphroditus. The slavitude of Jesus and Paul were very much at home in the forefront of his mind. Could we maybe ask the Lord to make that a reality for us? So, I want you to join me this morning in your outline. Hopefully you got one. If not, there's some in the back. Please, on that back desk back there, please grab one. Join me as Paul, the great apostle, marks Epaphroditus's, first of all, his description. Number one, Paul marks his description in verse 25. And I just call this... This an expert assessment. Why do I call it an expert assessment? Because who was behind the writing of this letter, church? The Holy, the Holy Spirit. Would you say the Holy Spirit was an expert on Epaphroditus? Yes. You bet. Matter of fact, I think some of the stuff that Paul's saying here <clears throat> might have even surprised Paul as he wrote it. <clears throat> but regardless, it is an expert assessment. Interesting to note, there are five terms or descriptors that Paul uses here. To say to this church at Philippi what kind of man their Epaphroditus was. You know what's cool, cool or fascinating about that? That's the most praise and commendation that Paul ever gave to anybody in the Bible. Barnabas doesn't get that. Even Timothy, and a few verses before, Timothy don't get it. Timothy was his boy, man. That was Paul's boy. They shared, they were same-souled. 
But there are five descriptors here. It takes five different descriptions to, to describe this man. And let's jump into them quickly, shall we? The first one we see there in verse 25, Yet I considered it necessary. This was a pressing necessity for Paul. I've got to send Epaphroditus back to you. But notice what he says. I found it, I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. Now notice his first descriptor. My what, church? My brother. My brother. Now we use that term loosely. I, I, I purposely use that often because it's, it's actually going out of style in the church today. When, when, when I grew up in the church, it was brother and sister, everything, right? And there's, there's, and there's a beauty to that. Why does Paul call him brother? And please don't miss this, because he was a true, authentic saint. He was a born-again son of God. Even last week when we looked at Timothy, when he said he's a, he is naturally anxious for your state, naturally means born He's not an illegitimate son. Timothy was legitimately born again. Here, Paul, the great Paul, calls him a my brother. What does that mean? My brother in Christ. He is, he is the real deal. He is truly regenerate. He has truly been crucified with Christ. His spirit is resurrected. He's a new man on the inside. He's the real thing. And I must ask you, is that you today? You may sit here Sunday after Sunday. You may grow up in the church and have heard a thousand sermons on the need to repent and believe the gospel and you may still die in your sins outside of Christ. Are you a part of the family? Paul would say in Ephesians 2.19, jot that reference down please. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners. He's talking to the Gentiles, which Epaphroditus was one. You're no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints, and, then, and notice this phrase, and members of the household of God. Epaphroditus was family. And your family with every other truly born-again believer. And you don't have to meet them in church. You meet them in the parking lot at Walmart. Family, your kin. I'm going to spend a week starting tonight at a youth camp. And I can't wait because some of my brother pastors are going to be there. Cannot wait for the fellowship. We are brothers. Now, this is interesting. What a weird name, Epaphroditus. And have you ever known someone named Epaphroditus? I didn't think so. And by the way, if you don't like your name, stop complaining. You could be named Epaphroditus. <laughs> um, any of you that are, are, are Greek uh, uh, lore or mythology people um, will recognize in his name another name of a goddess named Aphrodite. Right? And, and she was the goddess of lust desire and illicit sexual expression. She was a whore. And this guy's named after her. Again, one of the things we know about Epaphroditus is he was 100% Gentile. 100%. He was a good old pagan, and so were his mom and dad. 
And they named him after the whore god, Epaphrodite. Now, they wouldn't have called it that. That's a negative term. To them, it was very positive. His name actually means handsome or desirable or one dedicated to the goddess. So his pagan parents dedicated his life to the goddess, the demon god, Aphrodite. And yet the king of kings, the god who sits on the throne of the universe, regardless of his name, named him a son through Jesus Christ. What's interesting about this, Paul, in his pre-Damascus road days, having, having been introduced to Epaphroditus, he would, have, he would have recognized the whore God's name in there. And you know what Paul would have done as a good Pharisee? He would have spit on the ground next to Epaphroditus and called him a Gentile dog. You're a piece of garbage named after a demon goddess. That was pre-Jesus Paul. Post-Jesus Paul, what? My brother. We don't even have to change your name. By the way, Paul's name was not changed. Don't believe that. Makes good preaching. It's bad. It's bad exegesis. His Hebrew name was Shaul, Saul. Yeah, and the and the and the Gentile. Latin name is Paulus. Paul. Why does he go by Paul? Who did God send him to? What was his calling? He went to the Gentiles. God's called me the Gentiles. Don't call me Saul anymore. Call me Paul. Call me the Greek version of my name. He always had that. So that was free. I didn't even charge you for that one. So now he's family, and that is such a tender term. Look at the next phrase. Uh, my brother, and notice the my there, that, that genitive, that possessive. He's my brother because we have the same dad. Look at this. My fellow worker. Yes. Now, now this, is, this is pretty cool because here Paul is saying he's my equal. I love the King James here, the old King James. He's my companion in labor. We are working the gospel field Side by side. We're pulling weeds, we're planting seeds and water and soil. And this guy is my equal. We're shoulder to shoulder. Jot it down. John 15, 13, and 14. Greater love has no man than this than to lay one's, down one's life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do whatever I've commanded you. This man was a friend who obeyed the gospel alongside of Paul. Ecclesiastes 4, 9, and 10. Jot that down, please. Two, Solomon says, are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him back up. He's a fellow worker, a fellow Servant in the ministry. And I got to ask you, are you? Are you? Even in a small church like this, it, there's too many of you for me to serve well in the gospel and in your life. And by the way, the gospel is not like some separate thing that's up here in ethereal, it's everyday life. 
But God has put some Epaphroditus people in my life. Tom's one of them. You, you know, last Saturday, yesterday, they were at Jim Williams' house building a ramp so that Jim can get out without falling in a wheelchair now. I, I, don't, I, I don't have the time, and I certainly don't have the expertise. I could build Jim a ramp, but that'd be the end of Jim, right? But I got an Epaphroditus here who is saturated with the love of Christ and it's expressed in his love for our elder Jim. Y'all seen it? It's, and I need, I need more Epaphroditus, not less. It, I have to be careful here, but it is a little disheartening to realize that I've only got a few of these people, even in this small church. Look at the next phrase. Not just a fellow servant, fellow laborer in the field, and fellow soldier. And that word fellow is important. In other words, we're in this thing together. Well, what was Epaphroditus? Steadfast. Steadfast. Oh, for steadfast saints today. Amen. Are you steadfast? Are you unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord? Epaphroditus literally risked his life to be identified with Paul as a prisoner. Just going there and, and being connected with Paul, if things go south for Paul, Epaphroditus could be locked up and executed right alongside of him. Didn't matter. Why? Because I'm a soldier. Soldiers die. It's what we do. We fight. Sometimes we die. Second Timothy, jot it down, 2, 3 through 4, says this. You therefore must endure hardship. We talked about that in our D groups this morning. As a good soldier of King Jesus. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life. Why does he stay out of civilian affairs so that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier we are so involved in our life that kingdom life gets the limited almost zero leftovers it's not a good thing and it's not right he's a fellow soldier he is willing to fight and he is willing to die. So here's a thought here. You might want to jot some of these down. He's a, he's a brother, he's a minister, and he's a soldier. So here we have the idea of a family, a farmer, and a fighter. Epaphroditus is a, a son, a servant, and a soldier. And we need all of these. We need the warmth of fellowship that comes from a brother. We need the work of service that comes with a fellow laborer. Could that be said of us? We need the, the, the war of contending for the faith 
that comes with a fellow soldier. And oh, how glorious that you are not fighting alone, but there is a brother, a sister on your right hand and on your left. And you move as one. And when you do, there's victory. I'm curious here, why don't you, why don't you do this as an as a exercise of being involved in what's being told to you today. How about on your paper, write down someone that the Lord brings to your mind that might be an Epaphroditus in your life. Who's your brother or sister? Who comes to mind? Say, Lord, who's my Epaphroditus? Or who's someone that I know that's an Epaphroditus? Who comes to your mind? That's a brother that labors with you in the gospel and that is in the battle with you. They, they, are, they are your trench mate. Write that name down. He's not here today. He intended to be here today, but got a monkey wrench thrown into his plans. But I think a Mike Glaze was here last week, moving back in the area. And uh, old Mike and I, one of the things that he likes to say is that uh, you and I have been through some battles together, hadn't we? And we have. Mike and I have been through some bad, dark, hard times. And not just in the death of his wife, but in church matters that were demonic. We stood shoulder to shoulder, and the guy was in a trench with me, and I was in a trench with him. We, did, we, we were brothers. We've served the Lord and the gospel together. And that... That guy's precious to me. He's an Epaphroditus. He also says in the next verse, your messenger, let me continue, a fellow soldier, but look what it says in the same verse, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need. That word messenger there is apostolon, which we get the word apostle from. Now this is small a apostle, not large a apostle. So I want to make that clear. Good hermeneutics and exegesis in church history tell us unequivocally the only apostles, big A apostles, are those who were trained by Christ himself. There was one generation apostle. There is no apostolic succession. You won't find that in the scripture. But this guy was a lowercase apostle. And you know what that word just means, unless we get all high and mighty? It just means messenger, ambassador. He was the physical representative of all of the saints at Philippi, chosen by that church to very, very likely risk his life and may never come back for Paul and for the gospel. And you know what, church? He fulfilled his task, did his job. Now, plans got shifted, but he did his job, even at the cost of his own life. He was willing, and he almost got to pay that price. We're going to see in a minute that God was, had other plans, but wow. So he, he finished. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter. You've been faithful over a few things. I will make you uh, Lord over many things. Are you going to hear that? Or are you going to hear, depart from me, you lawless one? I have no idea who you are. Don't kid yourself today. He's also called my minister in that same verse. But your messenger who 
uh, your messenger and the one who ministered or served or attended to my need. He was sent there to do that. And Paul's saying he did his job. And it's an interesting word. He, he uses a very specific word that would grab the attention of the saints at Philippi. Remember, Philippi is a mini Rome. It's a Roman outpost. It's a Roman city in the midst of a Greek culture. It was, it was literally like visiting Rome just 800 miles away. It was like mini Rome. And this word that he uses, uh, letorgon, is a word, it's a, it's a word that is used specifically for, it's a great word used only of great men who were wealthy benefactors of the city in art, sports, or culture. Leading men only. And they were looked upon as great servants given over wholly to their cause. So he uses this word that would really prick the ears of the Philippians. It's like, oh man, he... He's one of those. He is a great benefactor who is totally sold out to his cause. Like the guy who paid all the money so we could have a mini Roman Colosseum here and his name is stamped on the outside of the bricks. Like him? Yes, Paul says. Yes, like him. This is a great man who is a, your benefactor for my sake. That's what that word means. Isn't that beautiful? Minister. Not some lowly servant although that's exactly what he did. We see lowly, selfless, self-forgetful service. Oh, listen to me, saints. God sees a great man, a great, renowned woman. We've got to look at it through kingdom glasses. 1 Corinthians 4.2, jot it down. It is required in stewards and managers and, 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 and slaves put over the affairs of the master. It is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. Are we faithful? Epaphroditus was tested and he was found approved faithful. Is that accurate of us? Ask the Lord. Father, is that, is that me? Let's move on to his disposition. The first was this, 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 Paul's assessment of this guy. His disposition, starting in verse 26, is an internal attitude. His, this, this, okay, so we saw what Paul sees from the outside. Now Paul is going to pull back the veil and give us a look on the inside of this approved man, servant, with the slavitude of Christ. Verse 26, since he was long, he said, I sent him back. I found it. I had to send him back. Here's why. Because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you heard that he was sick. So he uses two words here, longing, and then the second word is distressed. And, and, and truthfully, both of these words used on their own are, are, are what we would call the extreme words. It's not that he was homesick, but he was longing to get a message to you that I'm okay so you can stop worrying. And it messed him up. Look at the next one. It messed him up so bad, it distressed him so powerfully. One of the commentators says it drove him to be demented. It, it was literally causing him to almost lose his mind, have a nervous breakdown. And, and, and even, even the... Uh, the, 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 the possibility of a relapse 
of getting sick again and actually dying. While he was with Paul, apparently he was nursed back to health. But then he finds out that they know that he's sick and they're worrying about him and he's losing his mind by the fact that they're worrying about him. What a self-forgetful servant. By the way, the word that's used there for distressed, I won't even try to pronounce it. Listen to this. It's only used one other place in Scripture. And it is the word used only of King Jesus in Gethsemane when it says he was in anguish. It's how twisted up this guy was because somebody was concerned about him. His worrying for them, worrying about him, was literally making him crazy and risking a relapse. And then letter C, he was sick unto death, verse 27. But you know, I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong place. For indeed, Paul's saying no joke, for indeed he was sick almost, almost unto death. He was bad off, folks. But look at the rest of that verse. But God had, what's that word, church? Mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Pretty interesting, as I, as I was studying these words, I noticed that that word mercy had a weird ending. And you know what I found out? God had mercy on him. Mercy is a verb there. That's why it had a weird ending. Literally, woodenly translated, it would be, but God mercied him. And God mercied me too. <laughs> How many of you are glad that mercy is a verb today? Has God mercied you, saint, today? God mercied this, this servant of his and brought a slow, eventual restoration of his health. So Paul's reason for returning him early is what? That you might rejoice, in verse 28, Epaphroditus might rejoice, and that I will be relieved, and therefore I will rejoice. Look at verse 28. Therefore, because of this, I sent him the more eagerly. I was, I was eager to send him back to you. Not because he's defective, not because he's a failure, not because he's not helpful to me. Why? Because that when you see him again, you're going to rejoice. Who's Paul worried about? Paul's worried about the saints at Philippi, worrying about Epaphroditus. And I may be less sorrowful. I need to get you two back together so that he'll rejoice, you'll rejoice, and I'll know you all are good, and that I will be relieved, and I'll rejoice. What, what do I see in all of that? You know what I see? I see a self-forgetful, others-first attitude, a slavitude. Do you all see that? You gotta be blind not to. Is that our attitude? And as a very brief aside, I, I do want to say here that Paul, I find it interesting that Paul didn't heal him. Paul did not heal. Epaphrodites. That is nowhere in the text. In fact, the way the text is structured, it's pretty clear that the healing that came to Epaphroditus was what we would call a normal healing, in it, just like you and I get over COVID, right? Like we're praying for Dale right now. It's just the normal overtime healing of this man. And Paul did, now, did Paul have the ability to heal? 
All the apostles did. It was an apostolic sign gift available to the apostles in order to, listen to this, to validate the message of the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of King Jesus. He, he was the Messiah. He still is. He's seated at the right hand of God. And if you don't believe me, watch this. But Paul, but apparently, this apostolic gift was not available at will or at all times. Even in the scriptures, it says in Thessalonians where Paul left and he names a certain man, he left him still sick. Paul was not, Paul did not heal him. Paul didn't heal Epaphroditus. So there's an error in the church today, and we must be very careful and alert to it because it's damaging. And the error is that all saints should be healthy, and that if you have enough faith, you'll never be sick. No, and we scoff at that, but there's people that truly believe that today, and they are deceived, and they are deluded, and we must lovingly confront that error with the truth of God's Word. And if you're interested, and I hope somebody will take me up on that this week, I want to recommend a book to you. It's written by a guy named Costi Hinn, who is the nephew of Benny Hinn. That name will be familiar to many of you. Benny Hinn is a very well-known uh, faith healer. And uh, it's called God, Greed, and the Prosperity Gospel, How Truth Overwhelms a Life Built on Lies. He was Benny Hinn's right-hand man, his nephew. And this book tells the truth about what's going on behind the scenes and then how the gospel, the true gospel, is the answer. Paul did not heal Epaphroditus. It was not in God's will. Epaphroditus came to health in a natural, normal way. Paul left others unhealed. It's recorded in Scripture. Do not, you must not believe that lie. You must not. Because that lie will hurt you. I'll never forget an older brother pastor in the faith told me one time we were discussing something. It wasn't this, but we were discussing something else. And I said, well, if really, you know, people don't understand it. Is it really that big of a deal? And I'll never forget, he leaned over that table, his elder brother pastor, and he said, young man, heresy never helped anybody. We must check our beliefs against the Word of God. And that's, a, that's an aside, and I, I, but it's interesting to note that. Third, let's look at his deeds. This is in verse 30. I know we're going to jump a verse here. His external actions. So we got a, 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 an assessment, we got an internal attitude, and now we have external actions. Verse 30. Because for the work of Christ, he came close to death, Look at this, not regarding his life to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. He risked his life. I have under there that he slaved himself nearly to death. For the work of King Jesus, he nearly died. He nearly died. And then he was self-forgetful. The Bible says they're not regarding his life. Not regarding his life in order to be your messenger and servant to me, with me in the gospel. Verse 
There was a word in the first century that was used. This, this word for uh, not regarding his life comes from the, a Greek gambling word. It's a gambling word. It is literally, it is literally a word that is used to risk it all Put all your chips in the middle of the table. But this isn't just chips. This is your life. Push it all. I'm all in. And that's what he's, that's this word. And actually, the, the early church, there became a, a there's a, and, and they were called this by the pagans. The, the pagans called these early believers uh, the parabolemi. The Parabolemi. And the Parabolemi were a group of Christians who when a plague came to a city and everybody was getting out and the people left that had the plague were dying, the Parabolemi got together and said, you know what? We're going to go minister to these people. And yeah, we might actually get the disease and die. But we're going to die in the service of the Lord and we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna serve these very sick people with a high possibility that we're going to die. They called them the parabolemi, the, the life riskers. And because the church was known for that, they gained cultural capital for the hearing of the gospel. I'm not going to lie to you, my heart is broken. And it's not just us, but... And it's worse than other fellowships. But the amount of people that have never returned from COVID, they refuse to risk their life for their, for their own brothers and sisters, but stay hidden behind a camera and a phone. That is not in the spirit of a self-forgetful saint. Why? Would Epaphroditus risk his life in that way? I'll tell you why. He wagered his life because as a self-forgetful servant, he figured, I win either way. I win either way. Why? How does he win either way? Here's why. Because Epaphroditus was a Philippians 1.21 saint and not a 2.21 ain't. Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. 2.21, Nobody is interested in the things of Christ. Everybody is chasing their own things, their own interests. Epaphroditus died to 221 a long time ago. I wonder if you have. And sometimes it's your own theology that you're hanging on to. And let those things be divisive in the body of Christ. You're chasing your own things and calling them the things of God. We must be careful Diligent to search the scriptures in that. And then lastly is his due. In verse 29, I call it exuberant accolades. The exuberant accolades. Look at verse 29. Receive him therefore in the Lord. Notice that. In the Lord. Receive him with what? With all gladness and hold such men in esteem. Hey, I'm sending them back. And what's in the parenthesis is, and I know some of you are going to think he failed. 
Because I had, I, I had to send him back for his sake and for mine. Doesn't, can you see how that would look like he was weak and that he blew it? He said, oh, let me tell you something. No, that is so not true. Number one, he said, I want you to gladly receive him. Look at these exuberant accolades. Gladly receive him. Receive him, therefore, in the Lord with all gladness. Welcome him back. And rejoice. Be glad to see, truly glad to see him. And then highly esteem him. Be glad to receive him and then highly esteem him. Hold such men in esteem. What is esteem? Anybody know what esteem is? High honor. High value. It's how children are supposed to perceive their parents. High honor. A brother pastor of mine recently retired or resigned. And at the last meeting, and it was, it, it, was, it was hard for him. And at the last meeting, some of the people were doing exactly this. They were highly esteeming him for his over two and a half decades, more than that, of service to this local body. And, and, and one of the elder brothers stood up in the midst of, of just saying, wow, you know, God is really using my life. Praise the Lord for you. What a ministry you've had. Yeah, yeah. It's, this older brother stood up in the back and said, I don't believe it's right to be heaping praise upon men. We should only praise the Lord Jesus Christ. He has never read, apparently, or taken to heart this verse. Esteem such people and hold them in high honor because they're the king's self-forgetful servants. You're going to get a chance to do that in a few weeks, oh my. When the Lewis family comes to be with us, we must esteem. You say, preacher, why, why are you doing a, what a pain it is to pull a breakfast together. Seems like a lot of work. Yeah, compared with giving your life to the very closed Irish people for the gospel, that breakfast is nothing. And we're going to get an opportunity to highly value and love on this family and to receive them gladly and to esteem them highly because they are choice servants of the Lord. So what? So what? What do you want me to do with that? Well, I began by asking you a question today. Do any of you remember what that question was at the beginning? Based on the quote. What kind of sermon is your life preaching? What kind of sermon is your life preaching? Came across this this week. It's called the Living Sermon. I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. I'd rather one would walk with me than merely tell the way. The eye is a better pupil and more willing than the ear. Find counsel can be confusing. But example, it's always clear. The best of all the preachers are the men who live their creeds. For to see good put in action, that's what everybody needs. I soon can learn to do it if you'll just let me see it done. 
I can watch your hands in action, but your tongue too fast may run. The lectures you deliver may be very wise and true, but I'd rather get my lessons by observing what you do. I may not understand the high advice that you may give, but oh, there's no misunderstanding about how you act and live. What sermon are you living? Go look at that outline again. Are you in the family? You act like it? And this is not a do more, be better sermon. I don't want it to be that. I want this to be, Holy Spirit, I'm open. Show me where you're knocking this out in my life and it's great. And show me where I'm really just not cooperating with you. And would that that Spirit would be speaking to us right now. And if, if He is, I wonder, saints, what is He saying to you? Right now, are you an Epaphroditus? Is there some sin, some shirking of duty, some self that has crawled off the cross and has found its way back to the throne of your heart? How about we do something crazy today? How about you actually get out of that seat? And come and kneel at an old-fashioned altar. And take the position of a bond slave before your king and your master. And if this fills up, we got plenty of extra. You say, I ain't doing that. Why? Because it's about you. That's what we need to get over. Would you do that? Are you willing to do that today? Always leave the results up to God. But I'm going to tell you something right now. We need to fill this place up. And our tears need to stain the wood of this old altar this morning and the carpet alongside of it. And if you can't be an Epaphroditus in this building never going to be one out there. So would you stand with me? Our musicians will come or whoever's doing the last song. And don't get comfortable. Come. Come on. I'm, I'm inviting you to take the posture of what our identity really is, a bondservant of King Jesus. Don't just stand there. Some of you are sensing it. Don't think about you. Come and kneel before your king as I pray. Father, help us not be stubborn or sidetracked or distracted from the word. From what your spirit is saying to us right now, help us to get some Epaphroditus practice in this morning by stepping out from that chair right now and walking down this aisle and kneeling before you. Rebuke the pride. Override self. Drive us to our knees today. 
not in some metaphorical, I mean literally to our knees right now. Bring your saints to their faces before you as a physical response to the word that was heard today. Come right now. If I weren't singing this song, I'd join you there. Father, bring your people to actually do something for a change instead of just hear a sermon and gather around a good meal and talk about it. Let them put not feet to their prayers, but knees. And I'm not asking this for me. I'm asking this for you because you're worth it. You hung naked on a cross and you ingested our sin and we are afraid to step out and kneel before that king. Rebuke us and drive us to our knees because of grace in Jesus' name. You come.